2: Hey everyone from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And
0: I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we have a man who has run the health departments in both San Francisco and Los Angeles. And now he's at the epicenter of the health crisis in New York City.
2: That's right. We are very excited to welcome Dr. Mitch Katz. He is the CEO of New York City's Health and Hospitals, the largest public health care system in the country. He has been very busy these days. Uh, In recent days, we've seen hospitalizations in New York for COVID-19. Luckily, remain pretty flat in recent days, but deaths are still rising. Um, And we are here to talk to Dr. Katz about all of this. Uh, Welcome to The Breakdown.
3: Thank you so much.
2: We really appreciate your time. We know that you are very busy. And tell us uh, where you are right now in New York.
3: I'm in my office at 125 Worth Street in Lower Manhattan.
2: Okay, so you're at, you are in the middle of the city. Um, can you fill us in a little bit on where things are in New York? I mentioned that hospitalization rates have stabilized, but deaths are still going up there. Um, where do you feel like the city is at in terms of this crisis?
3: Well, we're certainly still at a very difficult place. When I look at my own system, which is 11 acute care hospitals, we have 870 people who are on ventilators. And we have uh, 2,900 patients uh, in our hospitals who are COVID-19 positive or presumed to be positive, which is pretty amazing when you consider that in February we would have had none. And so here a whole system, right, in just the course of six weeks has totally transformed itself to become a COVID-19 response center.
0: And Dr. Ketzel, you know, sometimes when you're away from an event and you're watching it on TV, it, the media can make it look worse in some ways than it actually is. But I can imagine, I, I can't imagine what it's like to see this up close. What is it like and, and how are people coping?
3: Uh, Well, this is definitely worse in person, Um, worse than anything uh, that I've seen, even as a doctor who lived through and treated patients through the AIDS epidemic, uh, in part because of the tremendous speed of this organism when people get sick. Uh, We've had patients who are texting um, in the emergency department and two or three hours later are intubated. We've never seen a disease that took uh, a segment of the patient so quickly from the point of uh, minor symptoms to being short of breath to having to be on a ventilator.
2: What's that like for you? I mean, and and, and the frontline healthcare workers, I I can imagine, um, you know, there must be a lot of adrenaline and sort of working in the moment, but I, I just can't imagine how emotionally challenging this must be as well.
3: It's emotionally challenging for so many reasons. Um, As doctors, nurses, healthcare providers, we want our patients to do well. And so when you're working as hard and fast as you can and people are just getting sicker and sicker and patients are on ventilators, uh, they're receiving multiple medications to keep their blood pressure up and still they die, it's devastating. When you couple that with the fact that your fellow nurses and physicians are also getting sick from the same Mm -hmm. organism and sometimes you're taking care of your fellow uh, nurse, your fellow physician in the bed next to it and remember you're doing all of this um, with fear for yourself. Um, Tremendous fear people at the end of the day, going home to spouses and children and parents worried that am I carrying the organism home with me? Um, I've never seen a more difficult emotional situation for healthcare workers.
0: There are so many needs that the healthcare system has, uh, everything from testing to ventilators and everything in between. What what do you see right now as the biggest challenge facing the New York City healthcare system?
3: Staff, Uh, the expansion uh, of especially intensive care beds. In New York City, we've tripled the number of intensive care beds uh, to take care of all of these patients who are ventilated. Um, We've seen uh, great contributions from a variety of doctors and nurses, but this stuff is hard. This is intensive care patients who are on large numbers of medications, on ventilators, and there are not enough uh, critical physicians, critical care physicians, critical care nurses. Um, We're doing our very best to extend the existing staffing um, by helping them out. We're teaching people to do jobs that they've never done. We're segmenting jobs so that they're not doing the whole job, but they're doing a portion of the job. But in any healthcare setting, your staff are always the most valuable resource. And I think that's 10 times truer in this instance.
2: Absolutely. Um, and I know that, you know, in California, we're seeing our governor ask folks and I know that Governor Cuomo has, has as well to come back and work if even if they've retired or um, are in other situations. I want to ask you about another element of this crisis that we've been hearing more about in recent days, which is the seeming sort of um, inequities and, and and disparities between different communities. Um, it seems like Queens has been the hardest hit borough in New York. And I'm obviously, it's a very diverse place. I'm curious why you think that is, given it's not as dense as, say, Manhattan.
3: Sure. Well, it's a fascinating issue. Uh, So first, uh, Queens is not as dense as Manhattan, but you have a lot of multi-generational families living together in small spaces because of... Uh, income, people can't afford large apartments, so there's a lot of apartment sharing with multiple families, which makes it much harder uh, for people to isolate from one another. Then you have the fact that uh, people at higher incomes are often able to sit at their computers and do their zoom jobs. Um, but low income people, they're the ones delivering our food, they're the transit workers, they're the home care workers. So while people are having their Zoom meetings, other people are going out and thereby being exposed. So that's a second factor. And then I think nutrition, uh, chronic stress from being a group of people that faces discrimination, uh, higher smoking rates, higher diabetes rates. We're seeing this disease tracked very closely with asthma. Uh, Asthma besets the lowest income neighborhoods in New York, as well as it does in places like Los Angeles and the Bay Area. And so you have a group of people who, by dint of having asthma, are more vulnerable to this disease.
0: You mentioned, of course, that some people have, uh, I guess, what is in some ways a luxury of being able to work remotely through zoom or something else but among those who can't of course are people who work in the subway system the metro the mta and there have been uh, i believe dozens of people from the new york mta who have died of covid19 talk about that and what is the city doing to keep them safe
3: well it's a huge problem and remember that new york city has so much community spread of COVID that it's very hard to know what, who gets it from the workplace, who gets it from, you know, being in the community. So uh, after all of this is done, there'll need to be a lot of careful epidemiology uh, to figure that out. In the short term, we're trying to arm people with more uh, protective equipment. Uh, All of us are wearing uh, face coverings. When When I come to my office, Where I don't need a a surgical mask, Uh, I'm still wearing a a protective covering over my mouth and nose. Uh, I think we have to take a broad definition of who is an essential worker.
2: Absolutely. Um, You know, this might be a little far ahead, but obviously, eventually, we want to think about getting cities back in order. And I wanted to know, understanding again, that everyone still needs to stay home and do their part on this. But what you think needs to happen from a medical perspective to even consider Uh, Moving past the sort of crisis moment. Are we talking about more widespread testing, random testing, contract tracing? We've heard about sentinel surveillance at places like nursing homes, serology. Like what are the tools that you're going to need as we move past the sort of peak of, of the worst part of this?
3: Very important and difficult question, and the the virus has confounded people since its arrival on uh, our continent. Um, certainly, I, I'm I'm happy that our healthcare care system in New York City has not collapsed. That we've hit what I think is likely to be the major peak. Uh, We're likely to have more and more patients on ventilators uh, because people are often on ventilators for long periods of time. But I'm not as worried as I once was about the system collapsing, where there would be so many patients that we couldn't actually take care of patients, so many people needing ventilators that we couldn't actually get them on ventilators. I feel pretty confident that that's not going to happen. But to, uh, to emerge from our current state, we would have to feel that we were not going to be transmitting the virus. And we're a very far away from that at this point. We, I think that it's going to take several more weeks of people sheltering in place. And I think there's going to have to be a very slow lifting of the restrictions, um, with constant watching. Uh, Having uh, rapid tests will be important to diagnose people quickly. It's not so helpful to be able to tell someone in three days that they were infected. We need to be able to tell people right now whether they are or not. I do think in the next week or two, the emergence of antibody tests, will be a game changer. These tests would enable us to say to someone, look, you have clearly been already infected with the virus. We can't promise you that you're immune, but at a minimum, we can tell you, you saw this virus and your body was able to deal with it. And I think that level of testing may give us a group of people who can safely restart the economy. uh, And meanwhile, we'll need to redouble efforts to protect our older uh, people who are at the greatest risk of dying from this disease.
2: All right, that well some good news in there. I'm glad to hear you say that the healthcare system is holding up. Um, we're gonna take a short break and when we return, we're gonna keep talking to Dr. Mitch Katz, he is New York City's health uh, healthcare chief. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are talking today with New York City Healthcare CEO Mitch Katz. He is uh, the doctor in charge of the nation's largest public healthcare system, which is, of course, at the center of the coronavirus outbreak here in the U.S. Um, before the break, we were talking about the situation in New York, but Dr. Katz, we want to go back a little bit and talk about uh, you and, and and how you came to be the head of this healthcare system. You grew up in New York um, and uh, spent time on the West Coast before going back, but can you talk? Talk a little bit about your childhood. I understand um, you have two siblings and they had developmental challenges that really kind of influenced your life growing up.
3: Uh, Yes. So I am Brooklyn born. Um, I I actually have three siblings. I have two older siblings who um, are developmentally disabled. I have a younger sibling as well. Um, But, you know, growing up, uh, watching them and recognizing how lucky I was that my my mind worked the way it did, I, I felt a very strong urge to be useful, to come up with a job where I could be of use to others.
0: I know that you, uh, your older siblings, uh, one of which I think your, maybe your sister was living on the street for a while, talk about the struggles they had and how that made, made you think about the public health care system and people living on the streets and all the challenges they face and inequities in the health care system, that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, my, my sister spent over a year in the New York City shelter system, um, and my uh, older brother has been in support of housing um, for developmentally disabled adults for, I think now we're on like 35 years. So, you know, I can really see how the government can make a huge difference um, for people who need services. And when that... Those services are not there. Uh, our most vulnerable really suffer. And I, I am a, I've, I'm a big believer in government. I, I know that government can sometimes be bureaucratic. I know it can sometimes be inefficient. Um, but really, it's the ultimate safety net that saves vulnerable people. And I'm very proud to have been part of it in San Francisco and in Los Angeles and now here in New York City.
2: Yeah. um, Let's talk about a little bit what you did here. I mean, you went to Yale and Harvard and ended up in San Francisco, I believe, to train at UC San Francisco. Um, Was, I mean, did you plan on going into public health? Like, was there a moment in that time? Did it have to do with your, you know, your childhood and and family? Or or was it through medical school that you kind of came to this decision?
3: Well, I think a lot of how I came to my job was that, At core, I'm a primary care doctor. I still see patients. It's always been an important part of my identity. But working in public hospitals in San Francisco, I would get frustrated um, when the system wasn't working. I would get frustrated when patients were in the hospital only because we couldn't house them. Um, And I could see how we were spending all of this money on MRI scans and laboratories and other expensive technology and still not changing the arc of their life. And so I got more and more interested in the question of how do you change the system so that the Most vulnerable people get better care, and I think that is certainly influenced by, you know, looking at my brother and sister and the things that worked and didn't work and how you have to have very individualized solutions um, that focus on what does the person really need. You
0: came up through the system here in San Francisco as an AIDS doc and an AIDS researcher. You were director of the San Francisco AIDS office for a bit before becoming health director. What did you learn from that experience, do you think, that helps you now?
3: Well, the the thing about the AIDS crisis that is similar to this is there was so much we didn't know. Um, we didn't know early on all of the ways that it was transmitted we didn't have good treatments. we didn't have prognosis and yet we came out the other end now with HIV being a completely treatable disease and people who take their medicines being able to live out their normal life and so I you know I feel you know from that experience um... the sense that this this too will work out that we will um, we will figure out covid nineteen we will figure out how to save people from it whether it's a, a vaccine or an effective treatment and that at the end of the day uh, good things will come uh... I, from for hiv i always uh... tell people anyone who has been successfully cured of hepatitis c should lay a wreath on the grave of someone who died from hiv aids because mm-hmm. we never would have developed the hepatitis C medications, which are so effective, were it not for HIV AIDS, we learned about those kind of medicines um, in learning how to treat people with HIV AIDS.
0: I remember in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, it wasn't even called AIDS yet. Uh, we didn't know how it was spread. I mean, with at least COVID-19, we knew it was a virus. It took almost two years to find the HIV virus. Um, and, and yet those healthcare workers on the front lines were Putting themselves out there without knowing if they could bring it home with them or get sick themselves. What What, what did you learn from working with health, frontline healthcare workers that uh, you can relay now to folks, uh, or that helps you relate to them and what they're going through?
3: Uh, I think, Scott, that your points are very well taken. Um, We didn't know. Um, I remember myself being unsure. Uh, I remember my colleagues being unsure. I remember in San Francisco, a prominent orthopedic surgeon refusing to do uh, operations. Um, on patients who had HIV. Um, so there was, there was so much unknown. Um, but uh, what I saw then and I see now in my own doctors and nurses is tremendous heroism. You know, people who, you know, really feel that they became a doctor or a nurse, a pharmacist out of dedication, and they're going to do um, whatever it takes to keep people alive. And we certainly saw that. Um, in places like San Francisco and New York and Los Angeles and the AIDS epidemic. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing...
2: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are talking with New York City Healthcare Chief Dr. Mitch Katz. Um, Dr. Katz, of course, you were uh, Health Care Chief here in San Francisco um, for many years. And, um, you know, you worked under both Mayors Willie Brown and Gavin Newsom on a couple of really, uh, I would say, you know, programs that got national attention. One of them was a needle exchange. You helped push to get tobacco out of pharmacies. You also created... Healthy San Francisco, which is uh, a program that required employers to provide health care coverage for their employees, um, particularly hourly workers who weren't getting it. You got a lot of pushback from especially the restaurant industry at the time. And I'm curious, like what you learned there that you are still bringing with you, because as we're seeing with this crisis as well, healthcare and really everything over the last decade, healthcare is so political. You're a doctor, but you have to navigate the politics as well.
3: Uh, Absolutely. Well, what I believe in my core is that you have to know what's right. And if you know what's right, then you have to keep pushing against the obstacles. And when someone tells you that it can't be done, and I certainly remember being told Uh, that we would not be able to succeed um, with Healthy San Francisco because we would be sued uh, by the uh, restaurant association and we would lose that suit. You know, to me, you you have to focus on what's right, and you have to always believe that you will figure out how to get over the obstacle or under the obstacle or through the obstacle, but you can't let it keep you from doing what's right.
0: You worked in three big cities San Francisco LA New York and they're all very different personality wise the culture is different the politics are different here in San Francisco the politics seems so personal which I'm sure you experienced yourself when you were here how do you how did you how have you navigated the politics in those three cities differently and how did each one sort of build on the next in terms of you know having the confidence to deal with elected officials who as we all know can have you know big egos and be bruised
3: Well, I still remember and tell people about the time in San Francisco I was working on uh, post-exposure prophylaxis, giving people medications after they had been exposed to HIV, and I was being screamed at by both ACT UP (laughs) groups, except that they were arguing from different points of view. Uh, one group was saying that I was now you know, giving in to all the drug companies and following their you know, uh, uh, attempts to make money on, on the lives of others. And the other one was angry at me because I had said that we would only do it three times, um, uh, give people those medications, and they felt that I wasn't progressive enough. And there I was, you know, being yelled at by both, but for opposite reasons. Um, And having withstood that, um, you know, I don't know that I've ever been subject to that level of attack uh, in the the 20 years since then. (laughs) Uh, So in that way, I'd say San Francisco uh, trained me well. When they say New I think York is tough, is tough.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think I tell I always tell people if you did politics here, you can you can do it anywhere, um, and that doesn't even count the silly string attack by uh, activists, right? That
3: were actually yes, prosecuted. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs>
2: You know, you bring up something that, that interests me, which is like the faith in the health system. I mean, we've seen this debate play out around, va- you know, around vaccinations in recent years, people who are very anti-vaccine. I- I'm curious if you see like a silver lining in the current situation that, that maybe this is giving the healthcare workers, the system, um, people's confidence again.
3: Well, on one hand, right, it's, it can't be, we can't be too optimistic about the silver lining because we mourn all those people who've died already and who will die. But, but I think you're right that in every crisis, things are learned, um, and we will learn things from this Virus. This is not the first time, um, right? The Spanish flu um, about 100 years ago uh, in many ways was much worse because it killed young people um, who were in the prime of their lives. Um, I don't know. When I look around in my hospitals, like most teaching hospitals, our hospitals are filled with brave young uh, men and women who are taking care of our patients. And I think, oh, my God, what if this were the Spanish flu? What if they were all thinking, you know, I'm about to be next? because it's young people who are killed by this disease. So, you know, every, every virus has its thing. Um, and part of what we need to learn is, you know, how to get over the, the COVID. And I do think that people are seeing uh, healthcare workers for the tremendous heroes they are. And people every day, um, you know, it's, it's, I have to remind people when we're talking about N95 masks, which are in short supply, we use them for taking care of patients with cavitary TB. And my nurses and my doctors, uh, every day go into the rooms of people with cavitary TB, sometimes resistant to multiple organisms. Um, And yet they take care of them because that's what good doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers do. You
0: worked closely with uh, Gavin Newsom when you were here. He was mayor at the time. Now, of course, he's the governor. I'm wondering, uh, first of all, do you talk to him? Have you talked to him in recent weeks about what you're going through and what California is going through? And, you know, what do you make of the job he's doing as governor, having seen him up close when he was mayor?
3: Oh, I think he's a great governor uh, for California. And and I do, I do talk to him and I talk to uh, his aides as well. Um, I think that uh, he he was, it's fun because I knew him when he was first appointed to the the board. I, I worked for him when he was mayor. And I'm thrilled to see him be governor. I think he's taken a lot of courageous stands throughout his career, including in favor of, you know, gay marriage ahead of just about everyone. Um, I think he is somebody who has a strong sense of doing what's right, and that will always be something I will admire about him.
0: You mentioned the, you know, and, uh, the uh, you know the gay marriage thing. I'm wondering, you know, for you being out as a as a physician, uh, has that you know what has that been like? And was that a hard decision, or did you come out like when you were young? And and, and how does it maybe help in terms of identifying with people now?
3: Well, I've always I've I, I came out sometime uh, before I went to medical school, so it's it's I've always been out around uh, uh, being gay. Um, I think I've seen tremendous. Um, changes. Um, and, you know, I think that um, the gay marriage uh, helped a lot. I actually think that HIV helped a lot, uh, strangely, because HIV forced a lot of doctors and other healthcare providers who were in the closet to come out. Um, And in that process, I think they were empowered and and saw that, you know, the world was not going to turn against them just because they were gay. And the fact that we that we had someone win the Iowa caucuses, you know, pretty amazing, you know, for openly gay man. So, I mean, the world is clearly changing. And I think each piece is important.
2: All right. Just a few seconds less. Left, Dr. Katz. We know you were an avid bicyclist in San Francisco, and I think you even did that in Los Angeles, despite the space. Is this how you're still getting around New York City?
3: Yes. As as a matter of fact, I was bicycling across uh, the Manhattan Bridge recently on my way to our emergency center. I'm listening to a conference call, and as, uh, as I'm bicycling, I hear uh, my mayor, Mayor De Blasio, saying, "Mitch." Mitch, Mitch. <laughs> uh, and I have to stop the bicycle to take my phone off mute. And I'm like, yes, sir. I'm, I'm here in the middle of the Manhattan <laughs> Bridge. <laughs> and I, I answered the question. And then he quickly said, OK, Mitch, we can hear the train. Could you please go on mute now? Uh, so uh, It turns out the bicycle is always a good way to get around.
2: That's probably safe right now, too. All right, Dr. Mitch Katz from New York City, thank you so much for your time.
3: Thanks so much. My pleasure.
2: That was New York City Health Chief Mitch Katz. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening.